0: Welcome to My Life, Khsidis Applied, episode 313. This program is dedicated on the happy occasion of the marriage of Gavriel and Khani this week, on the 26th of Sivan. Well, the whirlwind continues. The unrest, the rage, the pandemic, the ups and downs, and the effect that it's having on individuals and on our collective whole. Which on an exponential level is very hard to predict. It's one thing when it's when something affects one person, two people, or a small community. But here it's literally global, national. And yet, here we are in another episode of Chassidus Applied. Taking Torah and Chassidus, which is part of Torah. And applying it to our lives. An eternal... Blueprint and guide given to us by God to address precisely challenges like the ones we're facing now. That's one of the strengths, perhaps our greatest strength, it says Hashem Ame Hashem Samay Vashalam, that God gives strength to his people. Strength, but it's the word strength. And he blesses his people with peace. Strength here means fortitude, it means confidence, it means all that we need to stay afloat, to be able to navigate through perhaps uncertain and unknown waters, sometimes turbulent ones. So whatever it is that we're dealing with, whether it's due to the COVID-19 pandemic, or the racial tensions upsetting and literally creating havoc in our cities, in our communities, we have something to rest upon. And not just to rest upon, but it gives us guides, guidance. And it's more vital than ever when things are polarized, when you see so many different opinions. And it can be very confusing. What, who is saying what? What is their intention? Is there another agenda? Is it political? I mean, just to sort through all the different viewpoints can be quite daunting. So we have what's called Teir Tehra is called the Tehra of light. What is it, light? When you're in a dark room, when you turn on the light, the light doesn't change anything. But it illuminates and tells you what's what. And where's where. So if you're riding on a road, and the, life, and the, and the road of life is like, and life is like a road, a journey. And it's a dark road. All the paths, all the roads are filled with hostile forces dangerous forces, confusing, it's dark. What do you need? You need headlights. You need a light, like a lighthouse in the ocean, in the sea, we need lights that shine and illuminate for us so we have the clarity to determine what's right, what's wrong, what's ambiguous, who's saying what. So the Torah rises above the fray and above the vicissitudes of the ups and downs and the twists and turns and doesn't let us get trapped by people's opinions, by herd mentality, by this fear, that fear, pandering, and all that's going on today. So addressing the issues of our time, more than ever, when things are so confusing and so, so polarized, we need Torah and Hasidus more than ever. And I feel precisely that since this pandemic broke around Purim time, when it became a real issue in our minds, and now with the latest events in the last few weeks, with the racial uh, tensions and unrest, that more than ever, the necessity for the program like this and other programs, in order to help clarify and help address the issues, be able to distinguish, we all know that certain things are criminal and absolutely unacceptable, but then the question is how to respond to it, what is the healthy response, what is short-term, what is long-term, how do we not get caught up in political and other agendas Including rage and angry that can always, can only cloud our judgment. as such, many questions have come in, many comments. I can only do a selection of them, but I've seen just from the diversity, how, uh, how this is, of course, on people's minds and hearts, because we're all seeing our streets burn. We all see the challenges due to the unknown and the uncertainty, even though those cities are opening up from the lockdown and quarantine of for the pandemic. Yet, we see spikes, God should protect everyone, should eliminate and eradicate the virus, but it's not eradicated yet. So there's all these doubts and unknowns, and as we know, an unknown, a doubt, a suffix, in many ways is even worse than knowing that something is a negative. Because sofeq, molik is sofeq, a doubt. If I knew that going this path is not the right path, it's clear that that's already a blessing. But if you don't know to go this way, to go that way, to stay home, to go to shul, to visit friends, to travel, that doubt is very debilitating. And that's why a moloch is associated with doubt. So how do we get beyond suffolk? We have to find MS. The MS is truth that gives us clarity. We may not know exactly what lies ahead on the road, but we sure know that if we go with that light, eir ner mitzvah er, the flame of a mitzvah and the light of tere, we're going with a torch, with a light that can illuminate, so when we're faced with something, we know what to do with it. So the control is not necessarily the circumstances around us, but how we navigate. So with that, we are now in the week of Pasha's Shlach, and this week is also, the end of the week, Shabbos will be Chof Ches Sivan, the day that I came to America in Toph Aleph which means exactly 79 years ago, a year after the Fridika Rebbe came, a little more than a year. Fridika Rebbe came in Tavshin 80 years ago. Tafshin now we're in Tavshin Pei. And the Rebbe came in Tavshin Aleph. So we'll address that, as is our custom, to always begin with something connected to the Parsha and to the time in which we are in. And we're going to continue addressing the current issues in light of Tehra and Chassidus. And again, I thank you all for your questions and your comments. Before we get into things, let me just do a little housekeeping, some announcements. For those that are not familiar with this program, it's part of a series that's now going for oh, seven years. We're ready in episode 313 every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., My Life Chassidus Applied. As you can imagine, we've covered quite a number of issues. And to the point that we actually created a special website, called I'm sorry, chassidusapplied.com, chassidusapplied.com which has all the archives of previous programs. You can, there you can ask on a completely anonymous and confidential forum any question, any comment. We don't know who wrote it unless you share that information with us, so you can feel completely secure to know you can write any question, any comment, and it will be addressed. You'll also find there are many other resources, especially programs that we've been doing in the last few months addressing the crisis and the upheavals of our time. There's Also, you'll find the essays, beautiful essays written over the past years by people from all backgrounds applying chassidus to a challenge about our contemporary times. With that, we are getting closer to announcing this year's winners. Just bear with us. you read Even though there's been a delay due to the whole corona uh, situation, yet we will announce them. There will be winners. We will do it even better than we've ever done before. So just bear with us and apologize for any delays. You've done the writing. We will award you with the results, and we we consider it valuable and precious. We truly recognize and value the time and investment and energy that you in, that you invested in this project. So, any other announcements? Yes, someone asked a question. That uh, one of the last week I did a program, a class called "The Jewish Response to Racism." It's a very good program that addresses the entire picture. Here I'll be speaking about pieces of it, but there it's a comprehensive one, and was asked, I, I cannot find it, because we have two sites. Hasidisuppply.com focuses primarily on my life, Hasiddis in addition to Hasidic resources. Iembay, Amagvav, other Memorrim, and as I said, the other items on the site. Our mother's site, you can say, our main site, our flagship site, is Meaningfullife.com. That's where that class is. There we talk about, there that focuses that website more on the universal elements for people of all backgrounds. This is a little little more advanced. I use more Hebrew language and Hasidic language. It's still the same universal themes, but it's almost like a different uh, brand, if you wish, a different type of audience, a little more advanced. So go to MeaningfulLife.com and just type in Jewish response to racism. There you'll also find an array of resources. We have a special Corona section there. We're also upgrading now our calendar and a schedule of programs and events, which is quite robust. We've created hundreds of them in the last few months. So check it out. It's for your use. And we'd always love to hear comments and feedback and critique and any, um, any comments, anything you'd like to share with us. Okay. So let me begin with Schlach uh, and Chofches Sivan. We'll begin with Schlach and connect it. Shlach follows the parsha Baal which we read yesterday. And Shlach, another central theme, another, another uh, Shabbos where the Rebbe would use the name of the parsha and, and the story of the narrative and applying it to our personal lives. In many ways, it's a continuation of Baal If you recall, last week we spoke about We raise the flames. We don't just kindle them, that they should rise on their own. Empowerment. Shlach lecho, it begins. God says to Moshe, you shall send up unto you, shlach lecho, anoshim, send scouts to scout out the land of Israel to help prepare how to enter, how to conquer, how to properly enter into the promised land, as the Ramban explains. We all know, as Rashi says, Shok shokshere moyu. The people he chose were the best, the best of the best, the leaders of the tribes. And at that time, they were kosher, meaning they were pure intent, they were appropriate, they were righteous. But then things go wrong. They go off on their mission, sent by Moshe Rabbeinu, and they come back. Ten of the twelve tribes, ten of the twelve scouts, come back with a terrible report. We cannot conquer this land. They start describing the power of the people there, the giants. Eretz Echelas Yeshver, three words, a land that consumes its inhabitants. Kolov and Yeshua, the remaining two, they protest and say, no, it's a beautiful land. Tev Mo'ed Mo'ed, very beautiful, good land. This is the land God promised, and we can conquer it. Of course, the Ten Scouts had big impact on the people, they cried all night. So yet again, another defiance of God who took them out of Egypt. They traveled. We're going to the promised land. The land promised Avram Yitzhak Yankov, and now the Jews are crying. And God says, cry, you're crying? I'll give you something to cry about. It'll become a b'chil a Because Tishabov was when this happened, when they returned, and that night when the Jews cried. It became a day, a very fateful day, sad day, the saddest day in the Jewish calendar, Tisha B'av, the ninth of all. And th- as a result, there was a decree that all those, you don't want to go into the promised land, you get what you asked for, you won't go. You will all perish, you will all die in the wilderness. And it would only be Kolov and Yeshua that would enter. Even Moshe did not enter as their leader. Their children would enter, but not them. So this was a very serious event that has historical implications. What's the story? What's the story? Obvious question is this As Rashi says, Shlach l'cha, As soon as Moshe heard, Shlach l'cha, yusen, ani I am not commanding you to do it. L'cha. You have to do this at your own volition. Right there, Moisha should have suspic- been suspicious. What's going on here? The whole Tate, God doesn't tell him. L'cha. He commands, me. He tells Moshe, do this, say this to the Jewish people. This is what I want from them. Here's suddenly, do it at your volition. should have realized there's something here. And what happened? We see the result. So after the result, you would think, okay, it was a mistake. Shouldn't have sent scouts. No. We see later, in Chukas, he sends scouts again. We see later, Joshua, Yeshua, who was part of this and saw what had happened with his own eyes. When he comes into Israel, he sends scouts in the book of Yeshua. So we see, as we read in the Haftorah, we, so we see that it's not the sending of the scouts. So what's going on here? And what was the mistake? What, what happened? They were the finest. What happened? What did they see? That suddenly God's promises, they saw all the miracles of coming out of Egypt, of the parting of the sea, Sinai, Mountain Torah, everything that happened up till this point, suddenly what happened? They don't trust in God's promise. So briefly, the answer is, it's a story of all our lives. They were living in the wilderness, protected by the clouds of glory, bread from heaven, miraculous water. They were living in a very comfortable spiritual environment. They were very spiritual people. That's precisely what the problem was when they saw this land. They said, it's a land that consumes its inhabitants. We will not be able to maintain our spiritual integrity here. Because the land consumes its inhabitants. The, la- the answer that everyone who goes to work, everyone who goes into the marketplace, to the stock market, to the Wall Street of each generation, that's what they say when you start working, the concerns of making a livelihood, the competition, the hostility, the, cor- the corruption at times, all this consumes its inhabitants. People who start out idealistic and pure find it very difficult to resist the challenges of the workplace. Living here in the Midbar was like living in a yeshiva, God protecting them. So it was their greatness that was their undoing. And they forgot that the most important thing is not whether you like it or not. No one asked you. That was not the question that was asked you to go to Israel and come back with a, uh, with a, with a uh, conclusion. That was not the request. The command was go and scout out the land, how to conquer the land, not whether to conquer and that was their fatal mistake. They turned the how into a weather. No one asked you whether. God sends a person to this world and the Shammah doesn't want to go, but this is what God said. You come to this world. It's a difficult world, but there's a purpose. I'm giving you the strength to deal with this land that can't consume its inhabitants, that it shouldn't consume you. Yeshua and Kolov held on. Yeshua, Moshe prayed for him. Kolov went to the Mara Samach the different explanations what gave them the strength. This was not just a small error. This was challenging and defying God's mission to life. It's like God sends you to this world you say, no, I can't do it. There's no such thing as I can't. You only have to figure out how to do it. That's what you were sent and you were given the resources to figure that out. And that's precisely why shlach l'cha. Because this is something Hashem, God, wants us to figure out through our own means. Moshe understood that. That's why he wasn't suspicious. He understood the point. After Euscha, that the flame has to rise on its own. Empowerment, God is saying, I am telling you, but do this at your volition. I'm commanding you to do it at your own volition. It has to be you want you have to own it. And yes, is there a risk? Of course there's a risk, because we're dealing with Bali people who have choice, and they can choose, and we see the Miragnam chose the wrong way. But that doesn't stop us from doing it again. We have that's how God sends us. He says, I'm sending you to this world. I'm giving you all the strength, but you have to figure it out. You can't say, no, I'm not going to figure it out. The scouts went to figure out the das Tachten, using their resources and their faculties and their observation, how to and how. The how must be done by us. So we don't decide whether we do it, but we have to decide, but we have to determine how, and that's a lacha, the daitacha. So it includes really the purpose of all of life. And it's a perfect lesson for our times. That when we're challenged, and we say, who needed this? Who wants this? Why is this happening? People writing to me, millions of people in this country losing jobs. Why do we need this? Why do we need this whole disruption? We don't know why, but we know one thing, that we have the strengths, and we were given the strengths, that even if it's a Eretz echelas, even if it's a very powerful land, it will not consume us if you allow yourself to... to to channel the strengths that you were given, the blessings we were given. Because for every challenge, we're given the strengths to deal with the challenge. So the lesson is very clear. No matter what it is, you may not see the light at the end of the tunnel. You may not see exactly, but you have the resources. It's a tremendous lesson in life where the Miraglim obviously violated that trust. They violated the trust given to them that they were meant to come back to tell us how. And they decided, no, we're going to tell you, no, you can't do it. That's not acceptable. There's no such thing as, no, you can't do it. You absolutely can. You have to figure out how. So that's our challenge today, how. How we should deal with the challenge. How to navigate. How to find strength. How to find deeper love and deeper connection and deeper unity. How to look at people through the eyes of God, the divine image. Ultimately, the real answer to uh, racism, which we'll speak about soon. Now, schlach takes on many manifestations. Each In individual lives, a collective lives, throughout life we will be many shlachs. Many, pe- many times we will be sent somewhere. First when the neshama comes down to this world. And then through our travels. Whatever the travels may be, even when you can't travel, that's also a shlach. That's also part of the mission that God wants us to be on right now. The Rebbe, a son-in-law of the Fridic Rebbe at the time, had his journeys. That began all the way in Nikolai when he was born in 1902 and took him through many interesting twists and turns and very difficult ones as well. Tsarist Russia in the beginning, Russian Revolution, World War I. Ends up marrying the Rebbe Tzichai Mushkin, Tof, Tofresh, Pei Zayin, 19, I'm sorry, Tofresh Pei Tess, 1929. Sees his father-in-law, the Friedrich Rebbe, being arrested, being liberated. Yud Tamuz. Then, after marriage, they end up going to Berlin, in Paris, the Nazis occupy in, uh, the Europe and then France and so on. And finally, in 1941, miraculously, the Rebbe and the Rebetzin arrived to the shores of the United States. Many schlach, a shlach after a shlach. And you look at the stories, the ones we know, the Rebbe did exactly what we're speaking about. He understood these journeys as God leading him and the Rebetzin on a path. And in each case, you have to navigate and do what you have to do. And there were very difficult times, you can imagine, under Nazi occupation in France and the other experiences they went through. Then finally, in 1941, the Rebbe comes here, and this would become the permanent place, except for 1947, 1947 he goes back to Paris to welcome and, and bring his mother, Rebbe Tzachana, back to America, so for a few months. The Rebbe comes in 1941, and this begins a new stage of Shlichus, as the Rebbe writes. The Friedrich Rebbe appointed him to be the head of the Majdis of Merkos and and Kohos and Mach Nisrael. And um, the Rebbe faithfully does that, and nine years later assumes leadership, 1950, Toph Yud, 70 years ago, and the journey just continues. So Schlach manifests itself in Chofches and in uh, Sivan, I should say. 28th of Sivan, is a journey. It's about a journey and arriving at a stage, like the Rebbe explains, a lower hemisphere, where Matan Teter was not in a revealed way, as the Friedrich Rebbe writes to the Rebbe, explaining what that means, when the Alter Rebbe said, Matan Teter did not happen in, in the In a revealed way, so it's a darker place spiritually. And yet, as the Friedrich Rebbe said, America is Nistandish. The mission, the shlich, is the shlach l'cho. There's also Eretz Eichel HaSheshver. You know what was said about America? It was the worst Eretz Eichel You come to America, the golden Medina, the golden country, gold, golden in Medina, money reigns. People threw their tefillinachmon of Litzlan, the Yiddishkeit, off the ship, the boat, as they were arriving to Ellis Island. Because America was freedom, but not Yiddishkeit. Friedrich Leber came and said, no, we're going to change that. It's going to be here even stronger than it was back in the old home. So Eretz Yisrael, unfortunately, took many. Many people were taken by that, where the money, the capitalism, the power, the greed, everything that money represents, consumed its inhabitants, consumed the people, and that became more important than their spiritual integrity. But that was the purpose of coming to America, including Chofchess Sivan, the Rebbe's coming, to demonstrate that no, this land will not. We, this land will not consume us. We will consume it we will turn it into a means for spiritual growth, into a means for spreading Tehidah Yiddishkeit and Chassidus, into a means of building yeshivas and institutions that produce young men and women who will become in turn emissaries, ambassadors, proactive, shluchim, shlach, to continue spreading and disseminating the message of Tehidah Mitzvah until we bring Mashiach and the gu'ula, like the rabbis told us, the der ha which began with yut shva'a So the lessons are very clear. Part of it now, we're faced with a new stage that we did not expect. Completely didn't expect, complete surprise. The pandemic upon a pandemic. But we continue with the fortitude and the strength and knowing we have teir eir, and we have the directives of the rabbeim. And they told us, yes, it's a difficult land, it can have difficulties. There are many years where we had beautiful lives. We continue to have freedoms that are unprecedented in history. But now we have our challenges. But we do not, we're not daunted. We're not perturbed. We know we have the strength to deal with this, and we forge ahead. we continue the journey. God forbid ever looking back and saying, no, we can't do it. Leinuchah, like the Maraglim said, that we can't. We can't. It's too powerful for us. That's not the way we look at it. So there's the lesson, the general lesson. Now with that, let's address specifics about where we are right now in our situation. What is our attitude to racism? Which we began discussing last week, and I'm going to continue because more questions have come in. Obviously the topic on the the headlines is that, and there are many different views on the matter, but we have a Torah that tells us And it's surprising to me sometimes that, just go back to the basics. The Torah preceded all this. We addressed, the Torah addressed all kinds of challenges, including discrimination, including anti-Semitism, including hatred. So we have directives. And to put it in one sentence, the Rebbe, in hundreds of pages and hundreds of hours of talks, told us, especially in the 80s, the only antidote, the ultimate antidote, the proactive and preemptive antidote to all elements of violence, murder, including the murder of an innocent black man by a policeman. Every form of crime is prevented when you know that you're accountable to a god. And the Rebbe cried for hours. Establish a moment of silence in the schools. Teach our children, there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. How many hours did the Rebbe emphasize that? And it wasn't just talk. The Rebbe saw a problem, that the godlessness of society, with all its success, will fail when it doesn't have a godly higher purpose. The founding fathers recognized that. You don't see anywhere in the Constitution or in the Declaration of Independence focus on let's create big businesses. It was all about recognizing the divine creator that created all people equal, And everyone has equal rights, no matter who they are, no matter what they are. They may not have understood themselves what they wrote. But basically they were saying guaranteeing rights for every human being. Because all are created equal. Essentially paraphrasing the words in the Bible and the Torah, every human being is created in the divine image. Seven and a half billion and counting. No matter what color, no matter what race, no matter what religion, no matter what background. This is a divine element. That's what life is all about. You rarely hear this out there. I can't say I've listened to all the news reports, but you don't hear this message. You want to make a strong message of what's going on now. Why is nobody declaring that in the top headlines? That should be the thing that everyone should be yelling. Finding that dignity in all of us. Instead, it's turned into this polarized arguments of righting wrongs and so on. Yes, people have been wronged. But This should be a wake-up call of exactly that, the divine image. That's what we should be doing. Take all your passion and all your rage and all your outrage and channel it to a revolution once and for all that God created us all and we're all in God's image and that's what we need to teach our children. Now, Of course, people say, listen, I haven't had God in my life for so long. You now I remember this tragic joke was going around. It was very tragic. I don't want to even repeat it in a way. But I want to repeat it. Remember when there was the shooting in Newton and other schools? And people were saying, where's God? Where's God? How could innocent children? And the response was, God's response was, you, you threw me out of the schools. Exactly right. We're not talking about defying religion, the separation between church and state. We're talking about a basic principle that is in the Declaration of Independence. That this life and its sanctity. When you respect that, everything else follows. Does that mean everyone suddenly comes perfect? But that's the standard. That's what we should be fighting for. You know, my platform here. I'm going to use it and full it to the fullest to be able to express that and other platforms. All of us have to be be saying this. It's the only way to counter. It's not just saying, "Look what's going on out there. People are completely gone crazy. They're intimidated." defunding the police, all other stuff like that. Political, pro-Trump, anti-Trump. Everyone senses it's clearly become politicized. The key message is one thing and one thing only, which is equal for all of us. This is not political. No matter who you are, whether you're a policeman or whether you're a white policeman or a black policeman, whether you're a white citizen or a black citizen, or Hispanic or any other color, shape, race, culture. I don't know how shape fits in there. That just came to me. You are created in the divine image. Each one of us. This should be the headlines in every newspaper, in every media outlet. Anyone wanting to do something positive, to change the culture, and make it better, and say this is a wake-up call. That's what we should be saying. I can go on and on just on this topic, but I want to move this forward. But I, I, I just it, to me it's so frustrating, especially on a program called Chassidus Applied, which is taking the Rebbe's teachings and Chassidus. What would the Rebbe say? The Rebbe said what he had to say. In the time of the Rebbe, he didn't see this in that, this extent. There was in the 60s, there were other times. Someone wrote to me, Why are you talking about these topics? Does it belong to Chassidus applied? You don't see it in Ayin Beyes, Samach Vav. Well, you know something? First of all, if you read it properly, you will see it there. Because what's the whole purpose of Chassidus? What do you think that my mother are teaching us? That we're godly human beings and to live up to our godliness. Yes, they don't talk about racist riots in the streets or looting, because that's the language of Chassidus and Teir. The Rebbe, look at the different statements he made. He even compared the slavery of the black slaves in America to the Jews' oppression, to one political politician that came by, the Rebbe, one of the people came by. Meaning we have many lessons to teach the world. And what he told David Dinkins, which I... I uh, used in Torah meaning for life in the chapter on love, to the point where he said asked for peace between the two peoples after the riots in Crown Heights, the Jews and the Blacks. The Rebbe said to the point, but to the point that they realize it's not two people, it's one people under one government. And then later the Rebbe says under one God. So the Rebbe spoke about it, and whatever he said then applies obviously now. It's the same, it's universal and timeless, and eternal principles. So in this context, here are some questions, some provocative questions. <clears throat> Once we've made this statement. How do you explain different examples of racism in the Torah? How can we reconcile the current climate which excoriates, which means it criticizes, racism with many examples of racism in the Torah? Such as people have dark skin as a punishment for Neuech's sons of Edis we must kill our molek. slavery permitted, can't marry someone from Moyev, even if they convert, etc. Well, it's your interpretation that that's racism. Let me make that clear, and it's not. It cannot be. Because we always begin with a tradition. that's called an axiom. Before you interpret any detail in Teda that may appear controversial or may appear discriminatory, you have to address the most fundamental thing of all. What is the axiom? The axiom is that God created the universe. That's undeniable. The next axiom is he created the human being in the divine image. The human being is Adam and Chava, which would become the progenitors, the ancestors of all human beings. There's no one that does not originate from Adam and Chava. Therefore, everybody is in the divine image. If you don't begin with that and you find some verse, like somebody opens up the Torah and, and mistakenly, or not mistakenly, opens up the Pasha Kisove, the Pasha of the Techecha. Horrible curses, it sounds like. and says, wow, this is the Torah. who wants to read that? Or Pasha Bechukese. Or other statements. You don't begin with that, you have to begin from the beginning. And then you see context. What you see is, it's a Torah's Chesed. Because God is chesed. God created life from love. What, what meaning could there be to life if God created a world in order for it to destroy it? To punish it? Or to have one person hurt another? Is that what God wanted? Of course not. So you have to begin with the axioms. The axioms is that everything is out of love. The human beings created in the divine image. We are divine entities. Divine ambassadors in this world to create like he says, multiply and fill the world, and conquer it. Conquer doesn't mean conquer it in a warrior like way, it means sublimate it and turn it into a divine home. Gani, basilagani, into a garden. These are the principles that we have to begin with. So then, when you see a statement that says, one second, here's a statement that sounds like one person may be inferior. You say, how could that be? It goes against the fundamental principle that God created every human being in the divine image. There is no such thing as inferior. Is there such a thing as an inferior divine image? Is there such a thing as even splitting a divine image? So you need an explanation. You need theological explanation. So what's this distinction between one person and another? And what does it mean The Jewish people are the chosen people? I've talked about this. Are other people not chosen? Who cho- what are they doing here? God chose them as well. So you have to de- interpret what you mean by it. But you can never defy and never forget the axioms. The muskolas hushen is the first principles. <speaking in Hebrew> I am your God and I created you for a purpose. Yes, the talks about criminals and what happens to a criminal. But that still doesn't take away from their divine image. We need discipline. Human beings have free will. They have two voices inside them, an animal soul, a divine soul and an animal soul. Actually, chapter one in Genesis, Bereshis, talks about the divine, the divine image. It's only in chapter two that you hear ram in the Urav, that a person also has a Hara, a negative, an evil inclination. And there's a battle, as Al Tareb explains in Tanya. So once you have that principle, then all your points have to be addressed. I wrote once a whole article about Amalek. How could that be? That God has to kill people that He created? So there has to be some explanation. Because the principle cannot be defied, the first principle cannot. I'm not going to go into each one of these. I'll address it more in the context of racism. Killing a Molik is not racist. If God said that there's a nation that became so contaminated, like the Nazis, that's not racism. That's basically God saying, and it's a one-time exception. So you'll say, one second, all racism says that. Yeah, but all racism is based on human discrimination. We're not talking about what God has in mind. You'll say, we're using God? No, if you believe in God, God is saying, here's a nation that's proven itself to be a danger to every Jew. Imagine like Hitler, you know there's a person who's a Hitler. We're going to elaborate more on this, hopefully, in pre- coming weeks. I just want to use the time well. So any one of the ideas in Torah that seem racist can never be racist because it's based. it would go against the fundamental principle that God created every human being in the divine image, including Amalek, for the record. A Malik also originates from, from the children of Avram and from uh, Adam and Chava. Yes, also from, uh, from um, the children of Noach. So, so but you could say a person, for example, becomes a murderer. Why does the Torah condone public uh, capital punishment, even though it rarely happened? Because a person can sever their connection their divine image can become concealed, and they can become a danger to others. It's not a contradiction. It's actually because of their divine image that they still, their soul still remains, but sometimes they have become a danger. It's not a contradiction at all. To say that a criminal is punished, and in some way, retribution, because of what he or she did, that doesn't mean the person is not creating the divine image as an equal. They chose to do something that has now become so so horrendous, that has to be addressed, especially if it's a danger to others. That's not a contradiction. And even when we have to punish them, we do it with crying inside our hearts. Even when the Egyptians who were like Nazis and tortured the Jews for hundreds of years, or 86 years, whatever, however it's counted, when they were drowning in the, in the, in the Yamsuf, in the sea, and the angels began to sing praise, God says, my... Creatures are drowning and you're singing praise. So why did God drown them? Because they were criminals. They were worse than criminals. But they're still creatures of God and we have to cry when that happens. When we see somebody do a crime, we cry that a divine image could have stooped to such a low state. That's very different than saying that person is inferior. They're not inferior. That's exactly why we cry. Because they're accountable. They did not live up. They violated. They betrayed themselves. Adam betrayed himself and his destiny and God when he ate from the tree of knowledge, together with Chava. Now, what about when you see things like uh, uh, slavery? Well, there's another discussion I had, and I should, I'll, make, I'll give references because I don't have them right here, but you can easily find them on our site. Slavery in the Torah is not exactly what is called slavery, we think is slavery. A master cannot do whatever he wants to a slave. No, it's not that simple. As a matter of fact, he has to treat the servant, is the better word I would use, than um, he has to treat him or her better than himself. And it's, and it's also under certain, uh, extreme, certain uh, d- difficult circumstances. It's not just a natural thing that you enslave. A person who allows themselves to be, become a servant to another has, has betrayed themselves as well. It's more complicated than that. Slavery is not advocated in the Torah. Nowhere does it say, go acquire slaves. They have a situation where there are people who come because they need Parnosa or they, or they owe money or whatever it is. They say, I will repay it through my servant. The idea for Jews to come and just enslave others, is completely not acceptable. It doesn't exist. Now you'll say, what about the stories when the Jews came into Canaan, into the promised land, and they conquered? So if you look at all the laws, you're going to find such benevolence and such compassion completely consistent completely the tater finding every possible way to discourage, even the temptation. There was temptation. Obviously, you conquer land and their people, so the temptation to turn them into servants, and you see how the Taylor dissuades and makes sure that the rules are so intense that nobody nobody wants to have servants in their home. Now, if you're talking about a cleaning lady like we have today, or people who are paid and treated nicely for their services, if you don't discriminate against them, and you don't own them, you definitely cannot hurt them, and so on and so forth. Just punish them because you feel they, they you own them. It's a divine image. It's always a divine image. As far as the punishment for Neuch sons, it's not so simple. First of all, in many many opinions. That was a punishment just for them. It's not necessarily means that that, that blacks till this day are all a result of that punishment number one. Even that punishment, it doesn't say it's explicitly in the teda. It's a gemodah. And you have to really analyze it well, what it means exactly. That he was struck in the skin. That's what it says in the posse. Rashi says that ne'lum emenu kush. What does that mean exactly? But then you find in the teda plenty of places and references where kush is actually referred to something beautiful. As we'll soon discuss. To say that all black people on this earth are, God forbid, a result of a punishment, a curse, it's absolutely incorrect. Find a source for that. There's no source for such a thing. The question is what what it meant when Bneiach punished, punished his son Chum for what he did. He did a horrendous crime, remember, whether he raped his father or he castrated him, but he definitely did something really, something very, very criminal against his own father. And what that means. Why would that be a curse for generations and generations? Why should grand, great-grandchildren suffer from that? Secondly, we find, you find blacks that are not necessarily result from, from descending from Chum. They could also be due to where they live in the world. The pigment of the skin. And where does it say someone has a pigment of a skin and therefore they're cursed? So it's not that black and white that you can just, no pun intended, that you can just make a statement and say that all blacks It's a misnomer and it's a part of a stereotype. At the end of the day, every human being is created in the divine image. And that's what the Rebbe said. Not two peoples, one people under one God. And no one has a right to enslave another. Not a black to enslave a white and not a white to enslave a black. And for that matter, Hispanic and for that matter, Asian or European or whatever descent or race a person comes from. What happened here in the United States, slavery Absolutely, from a Torah point of view, was not just not condoned, was criminal. It was criminal. Even apartheid in South Africa, I say even, apartheid, the Rebbe told rabbis and said, Taylor can never condone such a thing. The problem there was it was advocated by the government itself. So, what were the people supposed to do? How did, could they protest it? So, they would protest the way they were able to. But never will you find an institutionalized, I mean, institutionalized Jewish approach that any race or any human being can be subjugated, can be enslaved, can be treated less equal than another human being, it goes against the principle of every human being created in the divine image. Simple as that. Now, can someone be a criminal? Yeah, but a criminal has nothing to do with color of your skin or race. It could be a white criminal. It could be a Jewish criminal. And then the Torah has guidelines. What you do when a person is a criminal. What does it have to do with the equality of their divine image? That's behavior, that's choice, accountability. And then there's a due process of how you deal with that. But just as a a life sentence because a person is born of some color or another, and what happens if you're going to Africa where the majority are blacks, and a white person is subjugated and treated because they're a minority? Equal problem. It's all the same issue. That's what I said earlier, that's what we should be advocating, that's what we should be fighting for. Understanding this message. Again, criminal is a criminal. Criminal doesn't matter what you are and who you are. It's how you behaved. And on the other hand, if you're not, you are divinely, you're created by the divine in the divine image. Period. Nowhere will you find a statement that says otherwise. And if you do find something, because the principle of Tate is that God created the human race and every human being... You have to say you're not understanding. Well, we have to have an explanation for it. That would be an exception. It wouldn't be the principle. You, can't, you always begin with, as I said, the axiom. Okay. Just to capture this, and I see time is flying here. Oh, oh man alive. Just to capture this, Gemara in, in Tainus, 20b, Chavbeis. Rabbi Loza, the son of Rajbi, of all people, he came from his teachers. And he was traveling toward a city migdal migdal um it was called he's on a donkey traveling near the water and there's a person there walking by a very uncomely very ugly person the person calls out to him to greet him he doesn't respond so he calls to him again so abuela says to him Or says out loud, look how ugly this person is. And then he says to him, is everyone from your town as ugly as you are? And the man answers, go to the craftsman, the creator, my creator, who shaped me. And then Rabbi Lezer realized his mistake. And he asks for forgiveness. The man says, no, I won't forgive you until you go to the creator and ask him why he created me this way. They go back to town where Rabbi comes and all his students are there and they're respecting him. And the ugly, the unbecoming man, the Mukhor man, says, why are you respecting this man? They say, he's our teacher. He says, there should not be any other such teachers in this world. And they said, what happened? And they explained. So the people said, but he did many great things. He's a sage. Please forgive him. So he said, in your honor, I will forgive him. That's the Talmudic story. Rashi says that this man was actually Eliyoh God sent him to teach Rabbi Luzer a lesson because it says in the Gemara, Rabbi Luzer was very proud of his learning and a certain type of arrogance, subtle arrogance. It's a strange story. Why would, we, why would Rabbi Lozar have this? But net, even so, a great man like Rabbi Luzer was humbled to realize because people can be deceived so the commentaries explained that it was, didn't mean physical ugliness. He saw the ugliness, so he thought his personality is also not uh, was ugly, that he was a criminal. He didn't want to associate with him. Different explanations. But regardless, it wasn't wrong. It was wrong. And he forgot one lesson. Even a great man like Abraham forgot that there's a God that created that person. Even in your eyes, he may not be becoming, but this is God who created him. So you have a tremendous lesson in life there. And it was meant to humble him. It's a lesson for all of us. Because we all can get trapped in stereotyping. We don't like how somebody looks. I'm not even talking about color now. Anything. I don't like that person. Whatever reason. We're taught there's a God that created each one of us. Each of us have our beauty. You don't like it? Doesn't it doesn't speak to you? It's your problem. There's a divine image in each person. And that's the fundamental lesson. And so even Rabbi Lazar had to learn that lesson. And perhaps because he was so consumed with his learning, he lost a little sensitivity and humility. Because that's what it says. He was says it says, he was, he was arrogant. And he was uh, very proud of his successes. So he lost sight for a moment. And then he learned his lesson. But the man was saying, go to God. Don't ask for forgiveness. I'm not going to to forgive you. This is not about a short-term, oh, you hurt my feelings, forgive me. You made a fundamental mistake. Go to God and talk to him about it. And then when the people requested, so he did them an honor, which shows that he rose to the occasion, this man, and said, you know, Rabbi Lazarus was also created in the divine image. So he he has a right to be forgiven. Like he says, I'm forgiving you, but make sure never ever to make this mistake again. Lesson that we can all learn from. So I'm not denying that human beings can stoop to discrimination. I mean, that's a given. We've seen that throughout history. The Jewish people have suffered from it, anti-Semitism, other forms of discrimination. Other races have, and blacks have, as many others have. Often the majority has discriminated against the minority. It's not uncommon. So we are now in a situation where we could all rise to the occasion and declare every one of us, every one of you, is created in that divine image. So now, follow-up question. So why do we make a blessing? Baruch Mishan The Gemara in Broches, Nun Ches Beis, and it's brought in the Rambam, and Hilchus Pedikud, Perek Yud, Halach Yud Beis, Turan Shulchan Arach, Rechaim, Reish Kofhei, Ches, Sima Reish Siv Ches, Tes. talks about making a blessing on certain things, including when you see someone black. A kushi. But look at the Gemara. It also says if he's red. Also if he's albino, very white. Freckled. And a whole bunch of other list of things. And what is Baruch Moshan Abris? Let's not use the way people mean it. What does it really mean? Blessed is God, Abrocha, for creating diversity. Diverse creatures. That's what it means. It doesn't mean inferior creatures. It means diverse creatures. And halach is a meant to be someone that you're not recognized. That's what all the commentaries explain. If you, if you were a black living among blacks, it could be the halach would be that you make a Mashana Briyas I'm a sana white. I haven't seen that if, if so I'm, I so uh, I, I make that disclaimer. But it's about Mashana that is different. And that's why there's a discussion if it's, if it's something that's not different, which means you're accustomed to, would you make the blessing? It's about appreciating diversity among creation. And again, once you know the principle, once you know the principle that everyone's creating the divine image, you, you then you understand this Gemara differently, this Halacha differently. And on the contrary, you come to realize diversity is what we're blessing. God did create diverse human beings. So, in answering the question, why do we say Mishana brias on black, just like we do on those with Down syndrome? and the dwarfs, and so on, it seems very discriminatory. No, it's not discriminatory. It's diversity. And when you read it with clear lens, without any preconceived notions, without our own human biases and prejudices, it becomes very, very clear. As I said, Leich Le'uman Shasani, even something that may appear to you as unbecoming, there's God that created it in the divine image. Why did God make people so different? Why did God make people so Why are some people black and other white? Why couldn't he make everyone the same? Wouldn't that make it easier to get along? Yes, it would make it easier to get along if you created only one person so you can never have two opinions. Therefore, there can be no arguments. There's no diver- there's no, since there's no two, there's no diversity. There's no arguments. There's no di- the divisiveness and no battle and no war. But that's not how God created the world. He created a world of, a frag- a world of many details that can appear as separate and different. And said, your mission is to make unity, create unity in a fragmented universe. On day one, the unity of God prevailed, says the Medesh. Day two, it doesn't say ki toiv. Every day it says God saw what he created and it was good. Day two, he don't say good. Why? Because there wasn't revealed good because there was, diversity was created. Two, the number two. Separation of the higher and the lower, the higher heavens and the lower heavens, the higher waters and the lower waters. Day three is a unifying force. Tiferis comes and synchronizes and brings harmony into diversity. So day two is called the aim of machlekas. That day, the possibility for argument was created because as soon as you have two. But day three, bo'a hakosavashlish The third verse comes and reconciles between the Snake Suvi Ma as uh, the two verses that contradict each other. That's the purpose of life. Not to have a clone, not to have one color or one musical note, to have many and to create harmony within diversity. That's the Nisava kodesh Baruch God desire to have a diribit means in the lowest worlds. But tahtein rabim many different elements to it. And we come and gather them together toward one focused mission, to serve God. So the diversity of life, of all species, including the human, is exactly what the purpose was in the language of Chassidus, to bring Ahdus within within his chalkus. If you know the way it works with the world, it goes, that first there was just Eir, Eir Sof, after the Tzimtzum, Tsum Eir Sof was a Kav. Still Eydis without Kalim. Then came energies and one container. Ten energies in one container. Akudim. Akud beklei echad. Think of like a a conception of a new child. Of a new birth. So what you have is one cell. Within that encompasses everything that will come. Then as the energies diminish, the containers begin to emerge. So then comes the world of Nikudim. Points. Ten points. Toihu. Here the energies are still intense. But you already have 10 containers, but they're fragile. So there's a shattering of them. Then comes vrudim, akudim, nukudim, vrudim, atzillus, tikkun. The tikkun of the shvira, the repair of the shattering of the containers in toyu. And now we have hiskalalus. Not just 10 10 distinct levels, but 10 interconnected levels. Harmony within diversity. And that's the purpose of existence. So the diversity could lead to divisiveness or it could lead to harmony and beauty. That's the reason and the purpose for it. So, as we continue with that, let's say this. Did Moshe Rabbeinu really marry a black woman? So, well, we read in, last, in yesterday's Bal Yud Be'ez Aleph, when Aaron and Miriam are speaking about Moshe Rabbeinu, in an inappropriate way, and they say exactly that. They say, they spoke against Moshe regarding Isha HaKushis, the woman he had married. Isha Kushis. Literally means, Kush is a country called Ethiopia, but often it's translated as black. And it repeats, for he had married a Kushit woman. So everyone asked the question, one second, his wife was Tzepera, she came from Midian. Midian is not Kush, Midian is a different country. So why is they call Isha Kushis? So there are different opinions. There's a Meddash that says that before he met Zeperi he did go to Kush, whole story. We married the queen, the princess of Kush. But most commentaries don't accept that. What does Rashi say? Rashi says that, um, that she was actually strikingly beautiful. And we're not talking about Kush as the name of a person, we're talking about a character, the beautiful character. As a matter of fact, Rashi brings Kushis, is the gematria of Yafas Toyar, Yafas Mada, sorry, Yifas Mada. Beautiful. 736. The word Kushis and the word Yafas Mada are the same gematria. And Rashi explains beautiful both in appearance and in deeds. That's what we come away from this verse. I don't know if the origination of black is beautiful is coming from there, but it could be. Shechera Nivanova is the postic right at the beginning of Shir Hashidim. I am black and beautiful. However you explain it, this definitely goes against what we've learned that some people interpret that kushi is some type of inferior thing. On the contrary here, it's about beauty. Now there are other explanations. I'll just give you a few others. That, uh, that the Midianites were resembled the, Kushits, the Kushites, that the Radak says it, Bechayi, Eben Ezra, Chizkuni, um, that Sapper was of darker skin. Let's see what other ways they explain it. Okay. The Talmud, as I said, explains it like a characterization in Moed Cotton. 16b, is a characterization of, distinct, of distinctive good, look, good deeds, like good looks. And then, um, I mean, that's a, that's a summary of the explanation. So, how does it bear on our discussion? However, you interpret Isha Kushis is definitely in a positive light. What they were speaking derogatory about Moshe was not that he married Akushis, it's because he separated from her. And that's when Hashem comes to them and says, Who are you speaking about here? Right before it says, He's the humblest man speaking to a man that I speak directly with, the great Moshe Rabbeinu, and the subsequent punishment that they received for redemption, especially Miriam. So we see here it's not in any way derogatory, the kushis part. In the contrary, that's a, that's a quality. It was that he separated, it was talking against Moshe, not against Tsepeira, according to the interpretation that she's the Okay, next question. Were the Yidnu who left Mitzrayim black... Well, I looked up. I believe this is urban legend based on a big rabid anti Semite named Gamal Abdul Nasser. He was the second president of Egypt, the one that led the Arab attack during the Six Day War on the Jewish, on Israel, on the Jews in Israel. And he was known to be an anti Semite. And he made that statement. So I think it just became that. He said, You know, what are you whites doing here? in this land. He meant the Ashkenazic Jews in Israel. You were blacks. How did you become suddenly the whites are here? It was one of his anti-Semitic uh, tirades. So I don't think there's any basis, but since you asked the question, that's what I was able to find. Maybe there's more on it, but that's what I was able to find. Okay. Um, wow. Let's, let's cover, let me see, I'll try to cover now. One, more, one or two more questions. Let's see what we can do here. Moving to a related topic, but in a different uh, vein. With all the unrest, should we consider moving to Israel? This, uh, quite a few people have written to me about this. And maybe the Jews in America should realize now, time to move to Israel. Well, this is a question not just in these times, in all times. And I come as a chassid of the Rebavitcher Rabbi, who responded to many people who asked him that question over the years. So his attitude was very straightforward. If you have a responsible position in an institution or organization, a school, you're a shliach, you're a rabbi, and you're responsible to people, you can't just pick yourself up even for your own comforts to move to Israel. The people you're responsible for. America has a lot of Jews, and so on has to tend to them. If it's optional, meaning you're not, you can work wherever you are in Israel, it would be just like here. So if the circumstances allow, it's definitely a consideration. The Rebbe himself sent his own shluchim to Israel. And Israel is the largest, a very large Chabad community. And besides the fact that many people in time of the Freedek Rebbe went, so it's not about not sending, it's a question really where your shlichus is, where your mission is. Regarding running to Israel due to fear, The Rebbe's approach was never out of fear. In Crown Heights, where there were the riots, and then there was the uprisings, and the social and the and the racial uprisings and unrest during the early 60s, and people ran from New York and from Cleveland and from Chicago and Philadelphia, the Rebbe was against it and remained and said it's a danger to run. There's halachas involved. That was the Rebbe's attitude when there was the South African unrest. That was the Rebbe's attitude with Israel. You can't give up land. Because if there's danger, you have to be strong. Allah's and and Hilchishab is what you have to do when you have enemies around us. So to run out of fear? So we have to look to our leaders for these things. Does it make sense? Some people said if all the Jews during Europe would have run to Israel before the Nazis came, it would have saved millions of Jews. That's possible, yes. But they didn't. Whether their leaders were right or wrong, did the leaders know? Did they hope for the best? So some are saying, be, "Be wise now." My response to that is, we are not driven by fear. That's not what drives us. If we go to Eretz because it's our, for a positive, out of love, not out of fear. The love for the Holy Land, the love for the Promised Land, the love for the land that we pray toward. Thousands of years since the destruction of the Temple, we pray toward this land, and we constantly ask in our prayers to return there. And even those in Eretz Israel. Due to our sins, we've been exiled. Not physically, they're there, but spiritually. So we are always aspiring to reach the Promised Land, and that's what we're waiting for. Each person's circumstances are different. So I'm not going to be able to give a blanket statement. If I, I myself have people, students of mine, people who have been in, influenced by me, who live in Israel, and very happily so, and I encourage them, and I would say, I'm not going to take credit but I definitely was a factor in, uh, in inspiring them to move there. So I'm not, if anyone, against that. But, it also, but you have to also balance of where your shlichus is, where you the most important, where God wants you to be. Remember, there's a God here. It's not just about ourselves. You think every great, great leader, one of the Jewish people didn't want to go to Israel, many of them tried to go, Ramban, Shalom, and others that went at the end of their lives. Why didn't they go earlier? Because they had a shlichus. And even though it was challenging and difficult, they have a shlichus. And that's what's most important. What does God want us to do? Not just what's comfortable or what is sound, makes sense or what um, would be good for others. It's what God wants us to do. That's what we're looking for. And if there are options, by all means, explore all the options and do what has to be done. We cannot forsake, cannot say, until the last Jew leaves this country to say, you know what, we're all going to save our own skin and other people cannot leave, and we just leave them alone, that's also not a responsible behavior. And we can elaborate more on that as well. Dear Rabbi Jay, please continue your work. I thank Hashem every day that we have your program. May Hashem bless the work of your hands. My question is, did the Rebbe ever address the future of our community here in America? Did he ever say anything in the Sichas, in his talks, of how we, as Hasidim, are to conduct ourselves in times of extreme turmoil, like we are now, are the signs for us to go to Israel? Please forgive me if this has already been addressed or the Rebbe felt it was a non-issue. Please advise, thank you. So I answered part of that, let me just elaborate a bit more. The Rebbe's approach was that divine providence leads a human being. It's a Torah approach. And that divine providence means wherever you're led, that's your shlichus, that's your mission. Whether God God sends your soul down to earth, like we said before, shlach, that's your mission. You have to figure out how. You cannot challenge and say to God, I don't belong here. I don't want to be here. I want to leave. You can say, how am I going to fulfill my mission? So with that, we have all the strengths we need. So when there's what you call extreme turmoil, yes, how do how we conduct ourselves? We look to the Torah. We look to Chassidus. We gather strength. We gather deeper faith and trust. And we, become, and we increase our spreading of goodness and kindness and light and direction and guidance. In these days, we do it online, we do it through a phone call, we do it through different ways of unifying experiences. Look how innovative people have been. Pre-Shabbos programs, post-Shabbos programs, Zoom classes, just personal connections. I've seen things that I know are not going to... I, I was just speaking to a rabbi from Brazil. He told me, all these programs are not going to go away when we go back to shul because it's really great, tremendous connections between us. And that's the way it should be. That's what we do. We do never resign ourselves. We never retreat. We see this as a challenge that we have to rise and become greater people and teach everyone else to become greater people. Whether to go to Israel, again, is a question, a general question. We don't run. We never run out of fear anywhere. We fulfill our mission. Now, if a person feels threatened, because of the different uh, uh, unrest. Remember, Israel's also had challenges. You can suddenly say in Israel, things are getting hot. And the Rebbe told people, Israel's the safest place, even when there were the intifada, and there were the uprising, and the terrorist attacks. And people were in danger. It's the safest place. Because where God puts you, that's your shlichus. Obviously, you have to be prudent, and protect yourself and your loved ones, and do whatever is necessary to protect. But we always think positively, God is protecting and that we do what we have to do, and God will do his part. And case by case, a person has to make a decision where they should live, just like whether they should live in the United States or should live in Europe or in Israel or in other places in the world. I think if you look at it objectively and get some counsel, independent uh, objective mashpia, a mentor that can help look at things, weigh the pros and cons of different situations, you'll come to God will help you come to the right decision each person according, and each family according to their situation. Okay, with that, even though there are many more questions and I would have loved to cover more, it just I think we covered quite extensively and I'm sure there's going to be comments and I welcome them about all the topics we addressed today. Um... So let me conclude with this. Being that we're going into Pasha shlach and we are let us all embrace our shlach Loha and the Loha, bring our resources, our intelligence the faculties that were given to us by God to figure out how best to navigate and to fulfill our mission. The mission to transform the world into our promised land to look for all the ways how we achieve that. How do you conquer this land? This land that has the potential to consume its inhabitants. How do we conquer it? How do we sublimate it? How do we transform it into a dira into a divine home, into a divine garden? Shem and God shall bless each one of us, each one of you to be healthy and well, stay safe, and be a force of change, part of the solution not, God forbid, part of their problem, part of forging ahead, knowing, confident, that we have all the strengths we need to navigate for ourselves, our families, our communities, and Hashem should finally see that we've done our part in the partnership, and ultimately and finally bring the Gula Hamitiz Vashlema, where we all enter into Eretz Yisrael, Shalai and rebuild the third base HaMikdash in full glory, and we'll finally have the fusion of heaven and earth, the harmony within diversity. That was the purpose from the beginning of why this world was created. God bless you all. Thank you so much. We're here every Sunday, My Life, Hasidus Applied, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone be blessed and be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at HasidusApplied.com slash donate.